Traveler, I cannot thank you enough for stopping. I wouldn't call you over without reason. You see, it was a long, cold night in the fields. My compatriot, he's severely wounded. The chill has set in. I... I can hear his bones rattling beneath his skin. Death is coming for him. Please, I beg of you. Can you seek help? How could you refuse? You've been driving all night, trying to race time, make it home, and back to your real life after a long trip eastward across America. It's a chilly early dawn in Pennsylvania, and as the mist parts around the hood of your car, you see him. You stop along the road to find an earnestly weary traveler with a wounded friend and a plea. A shock to your system. Unexpected. Almost unreal. But again, you look into the man's eyes and you see the earnestness and fear. You agree to help. But you look down at your phone and discover that the battery is drained. Hmm. Strange. But there's no time to worry about it now. You leave the young man behind with the promise to return. You speed across this unknown and empty landscape, seeking any sign of life, any light in the gray winter morning. A small local store, manned by someone who knows the area, who sees your worry and already knows what to say. Whoa, 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 no. Slow down, slow down, catch your breath. The side of the road? About a mile up, right? <laughs> You're not from around here, are you? That fellow's been pulling that trick for many years now, I'm afraid. I'm not being cold-blooded. Far from it. Just stop a minute. Think about that man you saw. What was he wearing? Looked a bit like a tattered uniform? How did he speak? Like he was out of time, out of sync? <laughs> it's sinking in, isn't it? That feeling you didn't really speak to anyone at all? <laughs> You're not the first to come here asking me about him. Sadly, you won't be the last. Part of life around here, living with the bloodstains of the past. Back out on the road, it finally strikes you. This isn't just some rural stretch of nowhere. There is momentousness here. A heaviness that even seems to slow your car. To catch your attention. To make you believe that there are figures in the mist. To make you believe a battle still rages and bleeds and dies all around you. You'd be correct in these beliefs because this is Gettysburg and here the battle didn't end and perhaps it never will. Welcome to Haunted Places. I'm Greg Polson. 
every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the fields of Gettysburg. To this day, it's haunted. If you can't get enough haunted places, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on your favorite podcast directory, as well as on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, I'd really appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. In 1860, there was little darkness in the town of Gettysburg. Sitting in the cradle of idyllic hills, the population hovered around a cozy 2,000. It had one thriving industry, the carriage business. Gettysburg was a town built on getting people to other places, a town built upon movement. Aside from that, there were the normal small-town businesses, the cottages, and the larger farm estates in the surrounding hillscape, and Gettysburg College, known as Pennsylvania College at the time. But then there was Fort Sumter, a shot heard around the country fired off in South Carolina. The country torn apart at the seams. The American Civil War began in earnest as the northern and southern states battled over the future of slavery in America. It was a great moral crisis and the most violent challenge of American democracy yet. It was only a matter of time before the small town of Gettysburg was drawn into the bloody conflict. June 3, 1863. Confederate General Robert Lee was facing heavy Union pressure on his home state of Virginia. In response, he decided to finally mount a true Confederate march on the north. By June 28th, Lee had moved his entire force into Northern Territory. Yet the Union was onto Lee's plans, thanks to intel supplied by Commander Joseph Hooker of the Army of the Potomac. And so it came to be that the Army of the Potomac under the command of General George Meade and Lee's Confederate Army, entered into a collision course. Meade could not allow the Southern Army to threaten the Northern capital. On June 30th, both the Confederates and the Union sent scouting groups into Gettysburg. They didn't know it yet, but both armies sat on opposite sides of the town, like beasts in wait. When the troops spotted one another in the streets, there was war. In the fields, in the hills, in the river, and yes, in the streets of the town itself, as locals huddled in their houses and bullets ripped through the walls of their homes. The battle consumed 30,000 acres of land. And then, it was over. General Lee realized he had strayed too far from the supply line. They were running low. And so was morale. 28,000 men had been put out of commission, either dead or wounded. He ordered the retreat. And despite contrary orders from D.C., 
Union General Meade refused to pursue. Both sides had been through enough. There were around 51,000 casualties, 8,000 dead. It was the deadliest battle of the Civil War. The sun of Pennsylvania roasted the fallen bodies that littered the fields and the streets. The air reeked of blood. A local woman described it as such. Wounded men were brought into our houses and laid side by side in our halls and rooms. Carpets were so saturated with blood as to be unfit for further use. Walls were blood-stained, as well as books that were used as pillows. Some federal soldiers stayed behind to clean up after their victory. The following are the words of one such soldier. Corpses, swollen to twice their original size, actually burst asunder. Several human or inhuman corpses sat upright against a fence, with arms extended in the air and faces hideous. It was something like a fixed leer. The neighborhood of Cemetery Hill had it the worst. During the first day of fighting, a Union battalion had retreated into these closely packed streets for cover and safety. Yet this shelter did not last for long. When the Confederates found them, it turned into a slaughter. One of many to come during the battle. After July 3rd, the streets and homes of Cemetery Hill were packed with the dead, especially the area around Baltimore Street. While Union soldiers and locals worked to clear the streets, they couldn't work fast enough to beat the rot. For weeks, the only way many could even come near this part of Gettysburg was with rags scented with peppermint or vanilla pressed close to their noses. To this day, the stench lingers. If a visitor or someone in town turns into the wrong alley, suddenly the smell of rot fills their nostrils and transports them back into the past when the dead were unburied and the sins of war still clear enough for all to sense. Cemetery Hill remains forever haunted by the phantom smells of Baltimore Street. But within the town limits of Gettysburg, one haunt stands above the rest. Gettysburg College, known as Pennsylvania College during the war, just three brick buildings in 1863. It became a Confederate hospital and central station during the battle. General Lee himself occupied its halls during those fateful days of 1863. Today, some students claim they can still see Lee's sentries running back and forth between lookout points in a desperate attempt to stay afloat as the tide of battle turned against them. But the most frightening tale comes from within the halls. The following story was chronicled by Gettysburg historian Mark Nesbitt. It was in the early 1980s. It was late. Too late for administrators to still be on duty. But it was a busy season at Gettysburg College. Two co-workers finally finished their work and made their way to the elevator. 
They were on the fourth floor and were headed for the first. They had selected the right floor, but the elevator disobeyed. It jolted straight down towards the basement. Sure, the technology in the building could use an overhaul, but neither administrator had ever encountered such a problem before. And now, the doors weren't even opening. That slow, inevitable build of panic grew. You see, when the college was used by the Confederates, the basement had been the medical team's operating room. It was the nexus point for every wounded soldier in the army. The administrators rapidly hit the lobby button, hoping to course correct. But then, they froze. What appeared before them was not a dreary storage basement of Gettysburg College in the late 20th century. It was a scene straight out of the past. In 1863, this room was the bowels of the Confederate hospital, the operating room full of the dying and the dead. Blood spread over the floor from various thick puddles across the room. Blood poured from wounded soldiers lying sprawled on the floor because there was no more table space. Blood dripped off the clothing of the panicked and exhausted medics scattered about the room. The entire scene moved at a crawl, as if stuck in slow motion. One of the administrators finally came to his senses and battered the lobby button with all of his might. But it felt like he was moving in slow motion himself. It was as if the sight itself was stealing away the administrator's life force as if the ghostly Confederate medics hoped a little fresh blood might finally free them from their eternal existential duty. And just as the elevator doors began to close, the lead medic turned his head, sensing these new arrivals. One of the administrators thought he saw hope in the man's eyes, as if the Civil War doctor believed that salvation had arrived for the doomed souls. The other college administrator saw nothing of the sort. To him, the medic seemed desperate, crazed, and completely lost. And like that, they were back in the lobby, back in the 20th century. But seeing into the past changes people. It makes them aware of their mortality. And when they're stuck late at night in a building full of troubled history, it makes them take the stairs from here on out. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now, back to the story. Today, the battlefield surrounding Gettysburg is now a national park, a swath of ground devoted to remembering the past. As such, the hillside homes that once housed farmers and local businessmen now host B&Bs and park ranger headquarters. But they aren't the only occupants. Take, for instance, the George Weikert House, 
once a farm belonging to George and his family. They fled during the battle. It then served as a field hospital for the Union forces. Today, though, the families of park rangers reside here. There's a door upstairs at the end of a long hallway. And that door just won't stay closed. A park ranger tried to seal it permanently. But something inside does not want to be contained. Downstairs, in the middle of the night, if residents listen closely, something paces with a nervous gait. Perhaps a spirit stuck, constantly considering and reconsidering its position, always looking out for Confederate invaders. Needless to say, the Weikert House never keeps its present-day residents for long. Nearby during the battle on July 2nd, Confederate Brigadier General William Barksdale led a charge on Seminary Ridge. A bullet struck Barksdale in the gut. His men dragged him to the relative safety of the Hummelball House. He sat on the ground in front of the house, bleeding out and delirious, crying out for assistance. Water. Please, just a sip of water. A young boy taking refuge in the house fetched Barksdale some water. He tried giving it to the wounded leader, but Barksdale looked right through the boy. The water spilled across him, but still he cried out, fainter and fainter. All I need is a sip of water, and then back, back to my men, to the war. He did not survive. Months later, his widow arrived in Gettysburg by train. She was here to claim his remains, buried in an unmarked mound near the Hummelbaugh house. She brought with her Barksdale's loyal hound. When it saw the place where its master's remains laid, it ran straight to them. Even after Barksdale's widow removed his body to be transported down south, the dog refused to move, as if it sensed that the important piece of its master was still here, under Gettysburg Earth. The widow left the hound behind. Locals tried to feed it and take it in, but the dog refused to leave the former burial site. At night, the entire area could hear its howls echo through the night. And every July 2nd, Locals claim those howls still carry through the evening sky. A mournful cry for a master who never came home. Some Gettysburg homes carry more ethereal weight than others. None more so than the opposing residences now known as the Farnsworth House Inn and the Jenny Wade House. The Farnsworth House was a veritable fortress. The brick and heavy wood walls provided a strong cover for the retreating Confederate battalion that occupied it during the battle. In the attic, Confederate snipers found a perfect nest. Many of the lives that ended in the streets of Cemetery Hill 
were decided from this one window. This attic has become the locus for much of the supernatural activity in the modern-day Farnsworth House Inn. As its name suggests, it has become a bed and breakfast marketed for ghost seekers. Guests note that feet move back and forth above their heads as Confederate snipers watch for their targets in the attic. There's also drifting music. One of the snipers who died here spent lulls in the battle, playing his harp to calm the nerves of his brethren. On one recent Halloween night, a local radio station took over the attic to broadcast a spooky ghost hunting show. As crew members shuffled in and out of the house, dressed in blue, they radioed in to the station owner, set up in the attic. A psychic on site immediately sensed a disturbance. The psychic told the radio crew to stop moving around. She was receiving a message. Do you hear that? They're responding. They believe. Shh. They believe they've been discovered. Look at your uniforms. Blue. The spirits believe you are the Union men who have finally discovered their hideaway. They're moving for the exit now, trying to escape. A futile dash. Nowhere to truly go. A heavy weight of guilt hangs over Farnsworth, as if the dense wood itself has trapped these wayward and tragic souls. While death did eventually come for the hidden and guarded Confederates, they meted out an equal amount of chaos and destruction from this house, turning a local fixture of Gettysburg into a nightmare fortress. The cost and consequences of the actions committed here can be illustrated in a simple, tragic story. The story of a neighbor down the road. The story of the Jenny Wade house. It began in the heart of Gettysburg town when local girl Jenny Wade met Johnston Hastings Skelly. It was love at first sight. <laughs> By the start of the Civil War, the two were engaged to be married. But Skelly had to first complete his duty. He enlisted in the Union Army and tearfully parted from Jenny. I'll wait for you, Skelly. If it takes this entire blasted decade to end this conflict, I'll wait for your brave duty to end. So Jenny returned to her everyday life, trying to ignore the conflict engulfing the country the same conflict that had taken her fiancé from her side. She went back to her daily chores and duties. She watched over her aging mother and babysat her sister's newborn child. Jenny loved children and would often invite the local orphans to play in her yard while she gardened. Keep my mind focused and clear, as God desires of me. One day, I'll have children of my own with Johnston, Look upon their smiles today and think of that future. But then July came, and with it, so did the war. After the first day of fighting in the streets of the town, the fields became the focus of the battle. The same fields that Jenny Wade and her family 
called home. Jenny wasn't afraid for herself. She was afraid for her sister and the child. So she packed her bags and went to take care of them in their home. Sister, pay us no mind. Mother and I will stay with you here in your home until this dreadful business passes Gettysburg by. We'll not let you and your newborn suffer in fear alone. Mother, sister, stay back. It's just some soldiers. Blue uniforms. The unions come for some assistance. Come on in, boys. The least we can do is keep your heads covered and fill your bellies. You're Johnston's brethren, after all. Stay calm, girl. It's just like a thunderstorm overhead. Real near, but not looking to strike down some helpless family. Only looking to pass over us. Pass over us. Focus on the task at hand. Get this bread in the oven. Keep your family and the soldiers full and healthy. Oh, Skelly. How I wish you were here. How I wish you were safe with me. (gasps) A single musket shot fired from the attic of the Farnsworth house, had gone off course. Instead of finding the ground, or wall, or a Union soldier, it found the breast of Jenny Wade. She died instantly. With the help of the Union soldiers staying in the house, Jenny was buried out back in a coffin meant for a Confederate soldier. Today, The house stands as a monument to Jenny. Every now and then, the smell of baking bread wafts through the home. Ghost hunters agree that spirits often continue the task they were doing when they were killed. Maybe Jenny Wade just wants to see her bread rise in the oven, to feed the ones she loved, to wait for Skelly to return home. But Skelly never learned what happened to his love. He died, miles away, in another battle on July 12th. Perhaps they have seen one another in the next life. Or perhaps they keep missing one another, like spiritual ships passing in the night. Either way, a stark fact remains. A tragic truth. Jenny Wade was the only civilian death during the entire Battle of Gettysburg. Our story will continue in a moment, right after the break. And now, let's continue the story. South of Gettysburg proper is a long, flat field that builds into a series of hills, culminating in a hill called Little Round Top. On the east rise of this hill is an unusual sight, something like a natural Stonehenge, tangled outcropping of tall and jagged rock. This area was known to be a Native American hunting ground. Before the war, many rumors were spread about this land. Some believed it was cursed by the souls of a forgotten tribe. That the rocks had once been in the shape of a pyramid, and a subterranean explosion had scattered them across the hill. All that was known was that the locals did not go to this area. They stayed away from Devil's Den. 
take cover. The cannons are tearing us apart. There, in the rocks, there, with me, men. But during the battle, all bets were off. It was July 2nd. Union soldiers took position on Little Round Top, setting up cannons that blasted down onto the long field beneath. Confederates had no choice but to take refuge within the stone maze of Devil's Den. Over 2,000 Union soldiers and 5,000 Confederates would meet in battle within the den as the Southern troops pushed for control of the cannons on Little Round Top. Battle lines broke down into regiments. Regiments broke down into man-against-man combat around any corner of rock. Bodies fell into crevices, forgotten. Blood poured out from the openings in Devil's Den, spilling blood down the hillside. It was a slaughterhouse. By the morning of the 3rd, Texan and Georgian troops had taken the Union cannons. When they turned to fire them upon the fleeing Union troops, though, they were out of ammo. With nothing left to do, the Confederates stood guard on this empty hill, surrounded by the corpses of their friends and enemies. But the next morning, the Confederates were in full retreat, and Devil's Den was abandoned. After July 4th, a rainstorm pounded down on the empty battlefield. The bodies left in the crevices of the den began to bloat and rot at an accelerated rate. When Union soldiers arrived to survey the damage, they were aghast at the horror that confronted them. These are the words of one such Union scout. Dead men had torn and twisted leaves and grass in their agonies, tearing it from the earth. Their mouths were filled with soil. They had literally bitten the dust. The ground absorbed the blood and bones. Skeletal remains still sit, hidden in the depths of the stone. The earth itself took back the dead. Soon, tales began to emerge. A few years after the end of the war, two hunters ventured onto the hill. They soon became lost in the maze of rocks. Then, they heard a sound. Above them, standing on the rocks, was a man in ragged clothes. He pointed his finger north. The hunters followed the direction and soon saw the field leading back to town. When they turned around to thank their helper, he was gone. This was the first of many encounters with this figure in Devil's Den. The first modern sighting came in the 1970s. A photographer came to Little Round Top to test a theory. People were claiming that mechanical and electrical devices ceased to work in the area. When the photographer raised her camera, someone appeared in the frame. Someone who wasn't there before. He had long, dirty hair. He wore torn clothes and a floppy hat. To the photographer, he looked like a hippie. He smiled, opened his mouth, and said, What you're looking for, miss, is over there. And then he pointed behind her. She turned and found a beautiful shot waiting for her. 
straight through the rocks and out onto the old killing fields of the battle. Overwhelmed, she turned back to thank the man. And of course, he was gone. From then on, this helpful hippie was a regular sighting around Devil's Den. People sometimes mistook him for a reenactor trying to prank tourists. They took photos with him, but when the film was developed, he was gone. His cheerful demeanor and playful reputation were in stark contrast to the horror that haunted the area. So, who is he? Many soldiers who died at Devil's Den were from the Texan regiments. These soldiers came from frontier living and often didn't have connection with family, or any family at all. No care packages were headed their way. So these wild boys wore their uniforms down to threads and often went without any shoes. If this helpful hippie is indeed a spirit, he's most likely one of these boys, hopelessly lost from his own land, with only the ability to lead others home. Another recorded sighting from this area arrived in 1993 during the production of the film Gettysburg. After a long day of shooting on location at Little Round Top, some extras retreated to the top of the hill to catch the sunset. Sure enough, that sunset was soon eclipsed by the silhouette of an approaching stranger. <laughs> Have you seen the fields below? Blood, fire, it matters not. It's desecrated either way. I swear it. Nothing will grow here again. <coughs> Perhaps after all is said and done, nothing will grow from the remains of this whole country. <coughs> Don't venture into those rocks either way. Our cannons have been lost. Steal yourselves. Take these, brothers. You'll need all the ammunition you can hold. For the fire rises. <coughs> and with it, the blood. The film extras rushed over to the production tent. They showed the crew the rounds of ammo they had been given. The production director was confounded. These weren't props. This was real ammunition and seemingly dated from the time of the war. From that point on, the legends around Gettysburg reached a fever pitch. Ghost seekers united over the internet, sharing and collecting stories. Soon, groups of ghost hunters convened in the park, staying overnight under the cover of the stars, listening. Here, Michael, look. This is Saks Bridge. A Confederate regiment passed over the same bridge on their way to their death at Little Round Top. This was it the portal to the Battle of Gettysburg. It probably looks something like this, a mist blocking everything from sight after the first day of grueling fighting. Soldiers shaking from fear after hearing the stories passed down the battle lines, knowing they were about to enter something more terrifying than anything they'd ever known. Look, my EVP meter's latching onto something. Shots in the dark, on the other side of the bridge. 
Come on, Michael. We need to get closer. Through the mist, it's flashes of light. The cannons of the Union atop Devil's Den. Just a few steps more. We'll be there. Through the fog, with the two doomed armies, it's clearing. I can almost see what's happened so long ago. Where? Where are we? Michael? Michael! We've come too close. The bridge, it's lost in the mist. It's gone. Oh, God. It's gone. No! No! Get your hands off me! I don't belong here. I can't help you. You're already dead. Don't you understand? No. Don't you understand? The battle does not end. Not in loss or victory. It's eternal. The pain is eternal. No burial can muffle it. No prayers can quiet it. And now, now the pain is yours. The past is yours. So make a choice. Pass through the landscape in quiet reverence or pull over. Enter America's bloody past. Witness the history of death come alive once again. Because this land doesn't reflect you or us or anyone but the dead. Meditate on these words of Abraham Lincoln from his immortal address. We cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it, far above our poor power to add or detract. Thanks for listening to Haunted Places. Don't forget to subscribe to Haunted Places on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Thursday. We'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Jack Bentel. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>